Welcome to this month's episode of the Doctors for the Environment Australia podcast, a podcast where we discuss topical issues related to the environment and health. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Our podcast is recorded all over Australia and so we take this opportunity to ask people to reflect on the country they live on and the special places they value. Hi, Kaya. It's been a while. How are you doing? It has been a while, Karen. I'm good. I am. I'm currently on a few days off from work, which is exciting. So I'm staying up with my dad on Juru Country, which is up uh, around Mission Beach, so a couple of hours south of Cairns. I'm currently sitting out in the rainforest at his place. I was reading about um, COP26 and what we're going to talk about this episode, and there's just this local cassowary just comes up, checks out what you're doing, keeps on walking past. He's like, do you have a banana for me? And I'm like, no, I don't. I'm sorry, sir. It's lovely. <laughs> it's really beautiful up here. <laughs> it's so good. And she's seriously not kidding. She sent me a video of this cassowary, yeah. and she's actually <laughs> sitting in a rainforest. <laughs> it's really gorgeous. I don't know if you can hear the frogs and the crickets through this recording. We'll see. I can. It's making me a bit jealous sitting in. <laughs> In Canberra in the very rainy, rainy weather, like 15 degrees below average temperatures at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. That sounds mm. nice. And you you recently passed an exam, I hear. I did, yeah, and you're waiting, so fingers crossed. So good. It's nice getting those things out of the way, enjoying not studying for a period of time. I've had to do a bit yeah. of warm-down study, though. That's what Rob calls it. <laughs> so, like... <gasps> Out of exams, I was like, oh, my God, I've just been following COP26 really closely. <laughs> That's reasonable. That's reasonable. Well, I mean, you were doing public health exams, so it makes sense. I, I have to say I have not been doing, like, deep diving into citric acid cycle and other things from the ED primary since oh I did my fiber. <laughs> yeah, no, you can leave that behind you. <laughs> I hope so. Well, Karen, what are we going to talk about today on the podcast? We are going to talk about COP26. And we're going to link in about what um, Australia brought to COP26 and Australia's net zero policy. We're going to have a bit of a background discussion too for people who may not be familiar with what COP26 is as well um, before we get into what happened this year. Yeah, that's right. And then for the second half of this episode, we'll be handing over to Dr. Bo Frigo, the DEA Queensland Chair, and also Denise Couchy, the Executive Director of DEA, who will also be discussing a little bit about DEA's perspective on the recent COP26 outcomes, as well as where DEA has been this year and our strategy going forward over the coming years. So getting into it, COP stands for the Conference of Parties, um, and it's made up of uh, 197 countries that have signed on to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And COP26, as you would guess, is the 26th iteration of this meeting um, of the Conference of Parties. And it meets every year, uh, but every five years the meetings become more significant because countries return with sort of new NDCs. Nationally determined contributions are essentially what um, each party brings to the COP with what they're going to do in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. 
And then every five years or so, they have this ratchet mechanism. So they have to, what they had planned on doing previously, they need to sort of become more ambitious the next time they come. That's right. Would you say that's correct? Absolutely. I think the interesting thing about this COP was that um, the ratchet mechanisms were more in reference to 2030. So people were being Mm. asked to put in place shorter-term targets in, in addition to their 2050 targets. I think the reason why is that essentially this is a critical decade we have to make significant changes before 2030 to limit warming to within 1.5. And so Mm. that's why really COP was calling for all countries to decrease emissions by up to 50% by 2030. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are probably uh, members of Doctors for the Environment Australia already or have have been sort of following climate change and health for a period of time but for anyone that's joined us the reason that we talk about we're so excited about COP26 and the environment on a doctor's podcast is because as many people would have heard of the Lancet which is a really large journal they have announced um, that climate change is the the greatest threat to human health of this century Uh, and there's lots and lots of reasons as to why that's the case super multifactorial it has to do with obviously increasing heat, how it changes uh, food supply, how it causes rising waters, but also how you have uh, changes in where people can live across the world, changes in communicable disease patterns. So it's it's extremely relevant to human health and not just the planet. Totally. Sounds like my exam. You can actually decide to divide them up into primary, secondary and tertiary impacts. Oh, please tell to. us about yeah. it. Yeah, so primary is like the direct impacts of heat. Um, secondary would be like vector-borne disease changes and then tertiary would be what you're talking about in terms of changes to food production and potential migration. I'm so glad we're recording this right after you've done your exam. <laughs> <laughs> so we thought um, there's been heaps of commentary about COP26 in the media we thought we'd take a spin on it, obviously, from a doctor's point of view, focusing more on the health impacts and also provide a really kind of good brief recap of what happened at COP26 and Australia's mm. policy because it's really important that we're able to advocate continually for action on climate change because of its impacts on health. So each year the hosting country kind of sets big aims for COP26 and this year really obviously the first aim is to have everyone come forward with NDCs to limit warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And they they set about saying how we would have to go about doing this. Really, the way that we need to get to below 1.5 is to reduce fossil fuel emissions as much as possible and then offset. So really, to do this, we need to phase out coal, we need to reduce um, deforestation, we need to transition to electric vehicles and we need to massively increase renewable investments. So that's how we get to net zero. The other things that are really important were establishing financing. So developed countries were promoting universal global effort for everyone to reduce their emissions. And so developing countries asked that there be a climate change fund to help with that. And so this year we were um, Mm. really calling for increased funding to help um, developing countries address climate change as well. Then there were two other points. One was about adaptation, protecting biodiversity and communities. And the fourth one was about working together. And I think 
the main outcome <laughs> or a summary really is like this is this is huge. Like make, making policy at a global level is massive. It's so much bigger than even addressing COVID nineteen, and so it's that's a key point that we need to work together. And at the time that we're recording this, it is, uh, I guess, essentially the last day of COP twenty six. We're recording sort of in the evening on Saturday the 13th of November and so COP26 has been running for two weeks now a fortnight and right up until the very very end negotiations are still going trying to come to conclusions and agreements for these Um, and so the working together point is actually possibly one of the most challenging ones. I think so that's right so do we want to talk about some of the outcomes that have already happened? Do you want to talk about some of the successes? Yes. Um, so there's been agreements. So there was a Glasgow Leaders Declaration on Forest and Land Use, and that increased commitments massively for conservation, reforestation, and public and private investment to support that. There was a pact to decrease methane emissions by 30% by 2030, um, and that was signed by 90 countries. And that's really significant because methane is a... Not including Australia. Yeah, not including <laughs> Australia. We'll come back to that. <laughs> Um, Methane's a very potent greenhouse gas and it also has really short-term impacts. Um, And so Mm. it's really – and also some of the ways that we can reduce methane are really, really cost-effective. So, for example, quite simple changes like reducing gas leaks from gas extraction. I think people get quite focused on the cows, but there's also other ways that we can address (laughs) methane that are really quite – readily available and then there was also many countries agreeing to phase coal out and at the time that we're Mm. recording I believe that the they're still finalizing the phrasing around this but unfortunately it Mm. looks like there hasn't been an agreement at COP26 globally to phase coal out which is quite disappointing because we know that coal has direct and indirect impacts on human health yeah yeah and at the end of that, there's, I think there's been a lot of really promising things that have been coming out of COP26, which is exciting. But as it's gone along, uh, particularly when the draft proposals uh, and documents were released a few days ago, uh, scientists and different groups did projections about whether these new NDCs and these new targets are going to be sufficient to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. And unfortunately, the answer, despite... Um, this ratchet mechanism that's occurred essentially is that we're still going to have warming that will exceed two degrees with the current plan, uh, which is pretty devastating and is really a sign that everyone needs to step up um, what they're bringing to the table in these negotiations. Absolutely. So I think that's probably a good segue to talk about Australia. All right. So we know that Australia, first of all, I mean, Australia Scott Morrison agreed to go to COP a week before and announced the net um, zero Mm. policy just one week before COP. So it's been a really rapid um, kind of period of time in terms of figuring out what's what's happening, 26. So we'll talk a little bit about what Australia brought to COP26. Um, And to begin with, I'll read a quote from the most recent Climate Change Performance Index report, uh, which explores, I guess, Australia's federal climate policies. Oh, and also it, it compares it to, to all the countries, really. So it's like an objective system of ranking a lot of different countries on their climate change policies and actions. 
Exactly, which is a really fascinating report to go through and also quite depressing from an Australian point of view. If you're looking for where Australia is in all the graphs, look at the very bottom. Um, Anyway, here's the quote. Australia's federal climate policies are based on its technology investment roadmap aimed at supporting technologies intended to help reduce emissions by 2040, yet with continuation of fossil fuel-based energy consumption. In October 2021, the government confirmed its long-term emissions reduction plan aiming for net zero by 2050. No new policies and plans were announced to go along with this announcement. The CCPI national experts regard the TIR, um, which is the Technology Investment Roadmap, as insufficient for decarbonising the economy, reducing the use of fossil fuels, promoting renewable energy and setting out how national GHG emissions will be reduced, with a rating of very low for climate policy. The government does not have any policies on phasing out coal or gas, but CCUS and hydrogen are being promoted as low emissions technologies. Even though the renewable electricity is growing, the experts believe that Australia has failed to take advantage of its potential and other countries have outpaced it. This failure to promote renewables, leading to a low rating for the share of renewable energy in energy use indicator, is exacerbated by inadequate infrastructure investment despite subsidies for fossil fuel production and promotion of a gas-led economic recovery following COVID-19. Despite public support for a net zero target, there is currently no national plan for transitioning to renewable energy, a backdrop for the very low rating for the National Climate Policy Indicator, with the policy uncertainty undermining investment and causing energy supply concerns. The country's lack of domestic ambition and action has made its way to the international stage. The experts describe that the country's international standing has been damaged by climate denialism by politicians, refusal to increase ambition and refusal to recommit to international green finance mechanisms, accompanying a very low rating for the International Climate Policy Indicator. Australia has fallen behind its allies and its inaction even attracted public criticism in the run-up to COP26. It's a really good summary. And, I mean, Australia was criticised throughout COP as well for Mm. what it brought to COP as well as potentially how it um, participated in negotiations. So I'm going to run through some of the things that actually Mm. brought to COP. So like we said, the focus of this COP was really on the 2030 targets and ask was for up to 50% reduction by 2030. So Australia didn't actually update its targets from um, the last COP. And so Scott Morrison in his speech did say that we are on track to Mm -hmm. exceed our target, but he didn't propose any new updated targets. The, I mean, it's good news. We need to focus on the good news that we are going to exceed our targets. So we're on track to reduce emissions by Mm. about 30 to 35%. And that's really because of uptake of renewable energy at a state and territory level as well as um, some previous yeah. changes that states put in place in terms of deforestation. But we still have significant mm. efforts to make in terms of reducing emissions, particularly from coal. If you read the CCPI report, we're one of the highest or the highest per capita consumers of coal domestically as well as exporting. Um, and then we also have to make significant advances in terms of transport. So we were out of step, really, globally in terms of our 2030 target, but we're in line with our 2050 target. So bringing net zero by 2050 target to COP is great. So let's focus on that positive. Yeah. So (laughs) I thought we we could compare to some other countries, but first of all, I wanted to say that actually what's interesting is that our federal targets are actually out of line with what our states and territories have put in place. 
So there's actually mm. most states and territories now have aims close to 50% reduction by 2030 or earlier, yeah. which is great. So there's multiple mechanisms for addressing climate change, but obviously the federal government's out of line with some of the state and territory governments at the moment. It kind of it reminds me of America a little bit when Donald Trump stepped away um, from the Paris Agreement and even during that period of time where he said, no, I'm not going to continue with this, America still sort of stayed on track with what it had planned to commit and a lot of that was due to what was happening um, sort of at the state level as well as the private industry, um, which I think is a reassuring and does give a lot of hope that even if the government isn't quite in step with what needs to happen, that there are other mechanisms at play that can keep things on track. Yeah, and that's true. Like at COP there were a lot of um, companies there and businesses that were putting big targets in place as well as well as funding. So there are other mechanisms as mm. well, but it's really important because some of the changes are really structural. We really require federal policy. So, for example, around our electricity grid, etc., as well as potential investments in renewable energy. Let's talk a little bit more about the net zero policy. So guess what's important to know about it? What does net zero actually mean? So net zero means that if you balance out the emissions as well as potential offsets or um, carbon capture storage has received a lot of press recently, that's about removing carbon dioxide mm. from the atmosphere or even purchasing carbon credits. So net zero doesn't mean getting all emissions down to zero. It means balancing them out with other ways to, um, to balance it to zero. So... I think the biggest problem with the plan that has been put forward for our net zero target is that it's focused really heavily on offsets, which are very, very costly, quite unproven technologies. And the issue is, I mm. think, as doctors, we're quite concerned about the fact that there's no plan to phase out fossil fuel extraction. And the concern around that is that, I mean, it contributes to climate change, has a massive impact on health, and also there's the direct health impacts as well in terms of air pollution, potential water contamination or impacts on water scarcity. And so there's no mention in the policy of health and the potential ways that mm. not doing some things can harm health, as well as the fact that they didn't, even, they didn't account for the potential benefit to health as well by taking more rapid action. So I think from, a, from our point of view, that's real, a real gap. Yeah. And it's when you read through the sort of the Australian way report, how the how Australia is going to deliver on net zero, it's extremely clear in there that there will be there will be no sort of decrease or shut, shutting down of coal or gas production. When you look at the summary document, it says what it is not. It will not shut down coal or gas production or exports. It's not going to cost any jobs in mining or gas. It's very, very protective of the fossil fuel industry. Hmm. It is. One of the reasons why they've said so is because there's still international demand for coal and gas. And so there's actually a line hmm. in the plan that says that if we didn't extract and sell it, then somebody else would. And I, I take, mm. I think that's a problem. So we need to talk about like what's what's the real driver behind that. So we, that's not really an, an excuse for us to continue extraction. We need to talk about how we can support other countries as well to transition away to um, renewable energy instead of fossil fuels. 
the other concern too is that if um, other countries continue to um, strive for the targets that they've set, it's very likely that actually fossil fuel extraction in Australia will decrease and there needs to be really like a just mm. plan to transition those communities that are dependent on it, which is being done in some other countries. Yeah. Should we talk about what the public and media response has been to Australia's policy? Yeah, you go for it. So I guess you might gather from the way that we've been talking about this so far, but it's been highly critical is one way to put it um, from both local and international media. And I think if you've been following along this in social media or local news reports, it has been extremely critical of the Australian government, what they brought forward to COP26 as well as what's happening on the ground in Australia. And the main issue really is that it's not ambitious enough, the 2030 targets, and the policy really isn't detailed enough. As we were talking before, the roadmap to achieve this net zero doesn't go into details as to how we're actually going to achieve that. And the really big one as well is that obviously we're still relying heavily on fossil fuels going forward without really any intention of phasing them out imminently. There was also, interestingly, um, a bit of promotion at the Australian Pavilion at COP by a fossil fuel company, which is an issue, I guess. There's also been criticism over the reliance of carbon capture storage with our plan going forward because it's largely unproven, as Karen was talking about. It's quite potentially risky and it's expensive technology and it seems to be being employed by our government as a in a way that allows us to continue to extract fossil fuels and I guess it goes against the whole spirit of trying to reduce fossil fuels so a lot of this carbon capture technology and sort of carbon offset a lot of that has to do with you should be trying to reduce your fossil fuels as much as you can and then using this technology for whatever remains rather than continuing business as usual and then just saying oh I'm just going to buy this paddock of trees and not let Mm. anybody else touch this paddock of trees. And I mean, at the end of the day, even if carbon capture and storage does remove carbon dioxide, it doesn't counteract the negative health effects of fossil fuels, such as air pollution. And that's important because for fossil fuels, for energy production, we have alternatives, but there are some things Mm. where we genuinely don't have alternatives, for example, concrete. So Mm. offsets are or like carbon capture is going to be needed but it should be for those things that we don't have any alternative for yeah and then I guess the one of the other criticisms is the fact we don't have good targets around methane and reducing methane production as well yeah that's right so let's bring it back to health again like we have a federal election coming up next year so I think it's important that members are educated on on the current plan and how it's likely mm. to negatively impact on health so that they can be politically politically engaged. And I think the biggest issue really is this, the current policy is not transparent. I don't think it's really um, particularly equitable and I'm, it's unclear whether they've really done a full cost-benefit analysis, really thinking about um, the direct and indirect impacts on health from climate change by their current policy. And then there's other things too in terms of raising public awareness related to really what the arts of COP were so and how they relate directly to health, which isn't often mentioned in the actual plan. So for Doctors for Environment members, 
when we're advocating, for example, for the transition to electric vehicles, that's really important because it reduces air pollution as well as reducing the emissions. But we could also mm. be advocating as well for increased um, infrastructure for active or public transport, which we also know has massive benefits on health as well. Yeah. And the other issue too around that is equity as well. So with no subsidies for electric vehicles or plans to make them more affordable, it's, it's unlikely that there's going to be widespread uptake as well. Yeah, and then I guess it's even if we did put in the subsidies for electric vehicles, it needs to be coupled with investment in public transport um, because even with subsidies, not everyone will be able to afford electric vehicles. And if there were subsidies for e-vehicles, it's likely they would still be expensive. So you're essentially going to be only giving these subsidies to wealthy people. That's right. The other ask of COP2, the ask for more rapid emissions reductions, particularly by 2030, so Australia itself is going to be directly impacted or is being directly impacted by climate change and we need to continue to advocate for better targets to protect Australians as well as people elsewhere. And then the other ask really was about phasing out fossil fuels and so we know that fossil fuels at a local level have impacts on air pollution, biodiversity loss, they impact on water, potential um, excessive water consumption as well as potential contamination and then as well, they produce greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. And I think it's really important that we think about this at a domestic as well as an international level in terms of our coal exports as well, because we know that countries that are using coal for energy also suffer from air pollution issues as well. Mm. Climate change should, shouldn't be a political thing that changes constantly. I think that it should be based on the science and really we need legislation to support long-term action on climate change and it should be cost effective yeah i think that's a big shame in australia lately is it feels that a lot of the government the government is often making policies and decisions that are the focus is on being re-elected rather than what's going to be best for people moving forward through the generations and so it would be nice to see that as something that could change in the future with a more long-term view so what is good for this country and what is good for the planet rather than mm. what's good for the next election. So we wanted to kind of end this episode with a more like positive action-focused segment, talking about what members of Doctors for Environment can do given the outcome of COP and the current plan for net zero in Australia. And so we thought one of the best ways to do this was actually divide it up by what the aims of COP 26 were. Yeah. And so to begin with, one of the big ones is obviously continue to raise public awareness for multiple things. One of those, and very importantly, is more rapid emissions reductions. Particularly the target for 2030. So for doctors, if you need to talk about it, really you can bring it back to the health again. So we need to limit warming beneath 1.5 to absolutely and so the targets are really important for that because we know that above that level the impacts on health are going to escalate immensely yeah and we know as well from the modeling that's been done that even if we follow these targets strictly we're likely to have greater than two degrees warming which is even more reason why everyone needs to push for this and to see those improvements in reductions that go beyond what is currently uh, foreseen yeah, that's right. I don't think people should lose hope because there is talk really about potentially ratcheting again next year or at least in 2023. So it's a really good opportunity for Australia to actually update its NDC for 2030 
So don't lose sight of that opportunity. We need to continue advocating for it. And apart from raising public awareness for more rapid emissions reductions, another great thing to raise awareness for is more rapid transition to electric vehicles, which is a super sexy topic and everyone is keen on electric vehicles. (laughs) Um, And then along with that as well is the increase in active and public transport because that is really, really great for health as well and it's great for the environment. Um, And it's also supported by a plan to phase out ICE. What is ICE? What is ICE? Oh, ICE. Uh, so ICE stands for internal combustion engines. Ah, yes. So <laughs> um, a lot of countries have actually got plans of totally banning ICE by 2030. And so Australia not having a plan is really worrisome. And people are really worried that Australia is going to become a dumping ground for internal combustion mm. engines, which means that people are stuck with these cars and we're stuck with the air pollution from them for quite a long time. So we need to we need to get in line with other countries so that we're not disadvantaged. Yeah. Other things to raise public awareness for is obviously phasing out fossil fuels. I think a lot of people do that already. And the big things for that is obviously we want to reduce the air pollution that's associated with it, reducing biodiversity loss because... Having fossil fuels not only involves the destruction of the land where you're going to be mining or whatever is going on, but it also has impacts to that whole surrounding area and beyond. And then as well as impacts on water consumption and contamination. And the big one is emissions, which are going to drive up global warming. Uh, You can also raise awareness for legislation that can support or back up net zero. Do you want to talk more about this, Karen? Yeah, so... I think legislation to support plans or policies is really important because, for one, it means that there's consistency, particularly across different election cycles and political parties, and it makes uh, governments more accountable and there's a mechanism really to kind of monitor and make sure that we're achieving what we set out to achieve. And then the final thing that you can raise public awareness for is really increasing people's awareness of the health link with climate change. And that's a really big one. As a doctor, if you're interested in the environment and you're interested in what's going on in the world with climate change, this is something that's it's really important that you're talking to your friends and your family and, as appropriate, if appropriate, your patients as well about this because people will listen to you. As a doctor, you put on a bit of a pedestal and... It's good to use that space and that trust from the community for something really useful, such as talking about climate change. That's right. Still, a lot of people aren't as aware of the link between climate change and health Mm. um, as you would expect, including some doctors. So don't ever forget that you can continue talking about it. The other thing, this is really relevant for doctors and grant members, is continuing to advocate for better policy. Part of that is about the work that DEA does. So, for example, meeting with politicians, assisting with submissions, continuing the really good research that DEA members do is really important because, as you can see, through this discussion, it was clear that health wasn't highly considered in Australia's net zero plan and it's really important that we advocate that health is considered in these policies. And one one to end on is that COP asked for the ratcheting of the NDCs and this might happen either next year or in 2023. And it's a second chance for Australia to bring its 2030 targets in line with the Paris Agreement, which was decided at COP21. And it's a really, really wonderful opportunity for Australia to do that. We have so much potential as a country going forward and becoming a leader with climate change, with all the incredible resources we have in this country. And so it's a 
really crucial time to be putting pressure on our government, politicians, decision makers to step up, become more ambitious and take climate change more seriously. I agree. Awesome. Well, that's a little bit about COP26 from Karen and I. Up next, we'll be hearing from Bo and Denise talking about DEA's thoughts in general about COP26, as well as upcoming strategy for the coming years. All right. So we are very fortunate today in the podcast to have our executive director and fearless leader, um, Denise Couchy, who is going to give us a bit of an idea of a few things. One, sort of the DEA perspective on the recent COP26 outcomes, but also give a bit of an update on sort of where DEA has been this year and where we're looking forward to for the next few years. Thanks for joining us, Denise. Thanks, Bo. Nice to be here. Yeah, great. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure you, like many of us, were kind of keeping track of the conference over in Scotland and all the different discussions and pledges and commitments and all that kind of stuff coming through. What was sort of your general takeaway about those past two weeks? Well, I think it's not a disaster, uh, but leaves a long way to go. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I tend to be at the more optimistic end of the spectrum. Um, it's not as bad as it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's one way of looking at it. Um, where are the areas that you feel like are, we've fallen short in terms of what our commitments are globally? The f- climate financing was, uh, didn't come anywhere near the um, 100 billion commitment that's needed for developing countries. Um, the commitments around loss and damage, and again, uh, for countries that are going to be the hardest hit, that didn't come anywhere near close enough. Um, but also the language around the phasing down of coal rather than the phasing out of coal was pretty disappointing. And, you know, and yeah. I think that the overall result is that we're, we're still not on track to keep global warming under two degrees and we're very far from 1.5. So I think you know, while everyone is saying that 1.5 is still alive but only just, uh, that's, you know, that's, I, think that's, I think that's positive actually, but it's nowhere near good mm. enough. Yeah. I was reading a few different articles and they were sort of doing the projections based on the commitments that have come out of this conference and they just are not cutting it. And that's the, that's the ultimate takeaway that anyone needs to get really is that if we're not meeting this sort of 10-year, uh, you know, goalpost that we've been using, then, you know, it's going to be too late at that point. So we, you know, we need to continue to push for better. And what, what about the uh, sort of the Australian context in that as well? Where does Australia fit into all of that? Well, Australia has really cemented its reputation as being a laggard on the world stage, which was pretty disappointing. I think, you know, having not signing on to the methane pledge was very disappointing. Um, The fact that Australia was one of the very few developed countries that didn't bring um, renewed nationally determined contributions to COP was pretty shameful. Uh, But because there has been an agreement to go back to COP next year with um, increased commitments for the, the countries that didn't increase their commitments uh, have been strongly urged to come back with something better. So I think that that gives us 
as a um, as a country and as a climate movement um, a lot of leeway or some leeway to uh, really put the pressure on our government to up its up its game. Mm. And particularly relevant when we've got a federal election coming up soon, it's going to be an interesting pressure point um, that hopefully a lot of the public is on board with too in trying to change the narrative around what you know Australia needs to be contributing in terms of its carbon output and mining output and all of those different variables. So um, it is very much sort of a watch this space sort of thing, but I agree with you. And it seems to be the consensus with most that, you know, certainly it could have been worse, but there are certainly a lot of areas for improvement, particularly from the Australian perspective in terms of what they're willing to commit to over the next 10 years, because that is the crucial thing. We're using these 2050 targets, which is useful in the long run, but I think people forget that you know, the bulk of that change needs to be happening in the next 10 years. Yeah, and I think that was one of the, that was one of the positives about COP2 was it was very, very clear that, that 2030 is the target we need to be looking at. Uh, 2050 is, is old news. I don't think anyone's really seriously um, thinking that that's going to be enough of a goal for anyone. Um, and I'd say the other the other positive that came out of COP, I mean, apart from India's declaration was pretty monumental. Uh, net zero yeah. by 2070, that was a game changer. Uh, but the other thing was the um, the pledge around um, forests and Australia has signed up to that. So um, that that is a very positive step as well. And so I guess I kind of wanted to use this uh, conversation as a bit of a leeway into really discussing sort of where DA wants to head in the future. And I know that we've, you know, we went under an organization review not that long ago, which sort of fundamentally changed a few things about the way the organization is gonna function and setting priorities and that kind of stuff. Um, but we've done a bit of a revamp recently. And do you wanna just kind of explain a little bit why you thought it was necessary for us to reevaluate and come up with a new three-year strategy? Yeah, sure. So I think having a strategy helps us to focus our energies and our attentions and and makes it clear to us where we're going. And that that's a, you know, sort of a way of harnessing the energy of the organisation and giving us all a bit more clarity. So and you know, it's, it's good practice within an organisation to every few years update or rethink its strategy because circumstances change. And, you know, what happened three years ago is, is a long time in the climate and environmental space. And we've seen so much change in the last couple of years that it really is time to refocus. And so sort of out of that, um, a, a lot of key stakeholders and things like that could participated in sort of redeveloping this strategy for the next three years. And so what um, not everybody's had the benefit of seeing the strategy. Do you mind kind of breaking it down a little bit in terms of what are sort of the key things that DA wants to focus on for the next three years? Yeah, sure. So the first thing that we did was clarify that you know the sort of the overall big picture goal that that we're all working towards, and that was that um, as we want to see Australia meeting its obligations, so its scientific, moral, and international obligations to cut emissions and protect nature for the sake of safeguarding health. So that's that's a very very big picture goal. And then the parts that DEA wants to work on that we want to achieve to contribute to that, 
it can be divided into three areas. The first area is around cutting emissions this decade. So we want our work to be really, really focused on encouraging Australia, the Australian government and other actors to to reduce emissions. And the way that we can do that as an organisation is through um, communications and talking about how a healthy climate, the benefits of a healthy climate and the linkages between climate change and health, uh, and also the advocacy work that we do. The second area is around nature protection. So the biodiversity work that we've been doing for many years, this is, is sort of now very quite clearly identified in the strategy. So we're looking at over the next three years, really um, promoting the links between nature and health and contributing to an understanding both within the health sector and among the general public of why we should protect nature for the sake of health, what might be some of the nature-based solutions to climate change, you know, around forest protections, for example, to the natural carbon sinks, uh, but also nature-based solutions to particular health challenges. And then the third area is around sustainability in the health sector. And that's something that has been discussed on this podcast before and uh, that I think many of the listeners will be quite familiar with, um, but around reaching net zero emissions within the healthcare sector, uh, the establishment of a national sustainable healthcare unit, and also the education work that we do around preparing the healthcare sector for the um, the coming impacts, the impacts that we're already feeling and the coming impacts of climate change. Yeah, and I felt as someone who was fortunate to kind of be involved in the in the development process of this, that it really, we really tried to find a strategy that reflected the unique experience and input and value of what our group offers compared to other organizations. And I know that we've talked about this a lot. There's, a, there's quite a, a lot of different environmental organizations that do amazing work. Um, and it's very easy for us to overlap with a lot of what they do. And in some ways that's necessary. The collaborative nature of all of our organizations is important. But we really tried to focus on what is it that DEA can do in the environment and health space that other organizations maybe don't have the same impact with. And that was kind of what facilitated a lot of these you know, specific outcomes, which I think is going to really give us a little bit more of a stronger perspective on how we sort of do our work differently. I guess from your perspective, now that we kind of have this strategy in place, how is that going to reflect the way that the organization, at least on a national level, is going to function? Well, it's going to help us determine um, the work that we do. So at a national level, where we put our resources, and by our resources, I mean, you know, our money, our staff time, the time and energy of our members in all the committees and all the working groups, it, it gives us criteria for deciding what we're going to do, basically. Yeah. Uh, I think the while there are many members with many, many different interests, and, you know, DEA does provide space and a place for people to work on a whole lot of different areas, uh, but what the strategy will do is saying that the bulk of the energy is going into these three into these three places. Yeah, and I think that was sort of the fundamental thing we needed to identify because by no means is the strategy trying to discourage 
members from having their own initiatives, plans, thoughts, ideas, um, and going with what their passions are. But as you've identified, anything we want to do requires resources from, you know, the national office and from the way that our national organization functions. And we run the risk of spreading ourselves too thin um, if we take on every possible different avenue in the way that which, which we could, you know, utilize our, you know, financial personnel resources. And so we need to be a bit more conscious of if we want to do something, we want to do a few things well, rather than many things mediocrely. And so that's kind of the idea behind it is being a little bit more focused. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think what it will do is that it's a good tool for people to use as well. So, you know, if the group that you're working in is deciding what it's going to do this year, you might have a range of options in front of you. How do you decide amongst that range of options? And I think the strategy will, will help people decide. So, you know, if we know we've got three main impact areas, cutting emissions, protecting nature and making the health sector um, sustainable, then out of the 20 different options that you might be considering, this kind of gives you a pretty clear guideline of, hey, why not one of these three? (laughs) Um, But the other the, the other thing, too, is that is that it is really important to play to your strengths and. It's very, we are, we're we're faced with a climate crisis and environmental destruction and it's, we all want to do everything we possibly can and it's really distressing. But sometimes that passion and distress serves to splinter our energies. And what, and this is coming back a little bit to what you were saying about, about identifying what it is that DEA is really good at and what is the best thing that we can do with our energy and time. There are loads and loads and loads of issues out there that that are important. We're not saying that that other that other parts of the climate and environment piece are not important, but what can we achieve the most in? What is the biggest contribution that we can make as people in this organization? Then we have to play to our strengths. So, you know, if uh, another organization has is really much better able to do a piece of work on something and we're not, then it makes sense for us to put our attention, put our energies where we are. And I sort of feel that quite on a personal level, you know, I, um, uh, as, as you know, Bo, I have been, um, I'm a relative newcomer to the environment and climate space. And before that, I was in sort of human rights and refugee rights and international development. But when I looked at the climate crisis and I thought, what is the best thing that I can contribute to this? I can stay in the job that I was very happy doing and do as much climate activism as I could. But if I look at what I'm able to contribute and what resources I personally have, how can I best use them? I thought I can best use them by coming here, not by staying where I was. And that's a luxury that I, that I had because I was, able to, I was able to move jobs and it's not all about me and my, and my, <laughs> and my work or activism. But it's, it's the same kind of idea that, that you have, that if you have too many things that you're trying to do, you can't do them well enough. So it's much better to focus your attention on what you're best able to contribute. Yeah. 
And I can, and I can agree. I think even, you know, on the state level, chairing a state committee, we get approached by all different kind of community interest groups on a variety of different initiatives and problems and things that they want our input on that range from everything. And I think having this strategic plan allows you to then take those um, requests and, you know, counterbalance them against what the strategy is meant to be and gives you a little bit of something to work off of, at least in my experience, where I can say, oh, you know what, this it's not that this isn't important and it's not that we're not supportive of what this group or individual is trying to accomplish, but is it aligning with the things that we've identified are the things that we need to be spending our energy on? And if the answer is no, then it gives me a little bit more clarity around saying no sometimes because we do have to say no we can't take on every every request and every initiative so i think so i can tell you that even on the state level it's been very helpful already to say look these are the things that are worth um putting our energies in because they do align with what we're trying to accomplish whereas these things are and it's not that we're not supportive but it's just we can't also put our energy into these things as well yeah, and I think one of the one of the really significant things that has come out of this process is being able to identify what it is, where it is that DEA has got a particular advantage. Now, we've always known that DEA can talk about the science and can talk about the health impacts of climate change and environmental destruction and degradation. But what has become increasingly clear is that as doctors have got the capacity to speak to audiences that a lot of other environmental um, organisations don't. So because doctors are respected members of society, they're trusted messengers, the the voice of doctors can reach places that um, might or can reach people that might not be very supportive of, of climate action. And that's because the respect that people have for doctors and, and, and the trust that they place in them. And we can see that in the COVID context that Australians are now very happy with, most Australians are very happy with the idea of following, the, following medical advice and understanding that if we follow a, me, a medical advice, we can avert certain disasters. Now, if we can apply that to the climate context, then I think it, it you can see where doctors' voices become particularly powerful. So if DEA were to think about how can we best achieve change, I think what, our, what we have come up with in the strategy is the recognition that we can reach fairly conservative audiences. And that is DEA's really significant value add. There are lots of organisations that know a lot about climate science. There are a lot of organisations that are really good at mobilising and talking to people who are already quite supportive of climate science. But, But we as a country need the whole population to be moving much further in that direction. So where are the voices that are able to shift the people that are a bit climate resistant? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I think doctors have got something really enormous to add there. And the fact that DEA is doctors and medical students and climate and environment together means that we are extremely well-placed to do that. And there yeah. are not many of us that are. So that's our advantage. That is by far and away our biggest advantage. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's certainly been my you know, personal experience working with the organization as well. 
All right. Well, I thank you for providing some of that context for us, Denise. I think it's it's helpful for our members to kind of have a sense of you know what is sort of happening behind the scenes and what um, what the national organization is sort of thinking and planning and prioritizing for the future, it's just so that way they can um, be a little bit more engaged with sort of where the organization is going. So thank you for doing that. Um, now, in terms of the you know, reviewing the strategy and things like that. How can how can sort of our ordinary members sort of engage with that? A lot of the action is going to be happening. Um, well, all of the action is going to be happening in the different committees and groups that DEA has, and there's quite a lot of them. So there are a lot of avenues to become involved. Uh, they're on at a state and territory level. There are the state and territory committees, and there are often groups in um, in other parts of of the states. There we have special interest groups in a whole range of areas. So we have biodiversity, special interest group, a sustainable healthcare, divestment, uh, energy and health, diet and agriculture, air pollution. And then we have national committees. So there are there are many, many different ways to get involved. And we are also doing national level campaigning and we'll be ratcheting it up um, over the next couple of months in the lead up to the federal election. We've already been doing a fair bit of work in some key electorates to try and educate the community about climate change. And, uh, and there are loads of opportunities there for particularly for our members who live in those key electorates to get involved. So do contact us if you'd like to be involved in that. And there are also all the committees and working groups. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you very much for giving up some of your time today, Denise, to have a chat with us on the podcast. I think um, it's always really enlightening to hear your perspective on things. I'll just speak for myself, but since you've joined us, our organization has undergone an incredible amount of transformation and your leadership has been incredibly crucial to that. So thank you for everything that you're doing for us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bo. That's very kind. Uh, I feel it's a bit overly kind, actually, because the organisation itself has been so ripe for change and so enthusiastic about becoming, you know, as effective as we can be that um, it's been my privilege to contribute something to that. All right. Well, you're very humble as well. Thanks, Denise. <laughs> Thanks, Bo. So in this episode of the Doctors for Environment Australia podcast, we talked about what is COP26, um, what were the aims of COP26 and what Australia brought to COP26. So we linked it back into Australia's new net zero policy. And we talked about what Doctors for Environment Australia members could do in terms of a call for action in response to what happened at COP26 and Australia's net zero policy. We also heard from Doctors for the Environment Australia's Executive Director, Denise Couchy, and Dr. Bo Frigo, the Queensland Chair, on reflections about COP26 before discussing the direction and focus of DEA's strategy in the years ahead of us. And if you are interested in more resources, as always, you can find things pasted in the show notes. We'll put in uh, Australia's Net Zero Policy, as well as the CCPI report and some other goodies down in there. You can also find more information at the Doctors for the Environment Australia website, which is www.dea.org.au. And you can also find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Catch you next time.